Well, good morning. It is good to be here. I, I think it is fact that that I have that I preach here maybe a little more often than I do actually at at, at Hinson Church. So it's greetings to you from Hinson Church and from Western Seminary. Hinson will have prayed for you already, or at least getting close to to praying for you. Can't say as much for the first service. Uh, those they. I guess we have to trust that God can answer prayers retroactively, right? Um, and that there was some sort of blessing that, that, that occurred uh, this morning. Well, I've been here a lot. Uh, I've, I've, I'm always warmly greeted whenever I come here. And uh, I, so you guys know me, I think, way better than I know you because I probably reveal a little bit of myself every, every time I teach here. I want to give you a little bit more info uh, on who I am. I am a child of the, uh, the 80s, really. My high school and college years were, were during the, the 80s. Uh, my radio station is tuned to, isn't it discouraging when the music of your high school and college is on the oldies channel now? It's like, what, what? I'm, I'm, no, this is like, oldies is supposed to be like 50s, not, not, not 80s, but uh, nevertheless. Uh, I will never forget, though, the summer of 1982, when I was treated to one of the most majestical theatrical events of my life, because before me on the screen... I was witness to this just incredible story of, of redemption, of conflict, an, an underdog facing insurmountable odds in his quest to ascend to the top. The, the, the protagonist of the story, the, the hero, he had to stare down and defeat first his own inner demons before he could begin to face the antagonist, an antagonist that threatened his own role in society, the, the dignity, of course, of the woman that he loved, and really, let's face it, the, the, just the, the very way of life enjoyed by decent people everywhere. On his shoulders, on his shoulders rested the hopes and dreams of a nation. No, more than that, let's face it, the entire world, the entire world. And as this story beautifully unfolded on the screen before me, I could put myself in the role of the hero. And quite frankly, everyone who was in attendance that day did the exact same thing. And by the time that movie ended, theater's greatest foe had been conquered. I was certain that there was no enemy, no enemy that I could not defeat, no foe who was too large that I could not take down, and no sacrifice too large to achieve my goals. Life would never, ever be the same. Those of you who are alive and watching movies at that time already know the cinematic masterpiece of which I speak. I am talking about Rocky III. Yes, Rocky III. And so with the soundtrack just echoing through my veins, you know, or I mean through my ears as I, as I walked out of the theater, adrenaline coursing through my veins, I wanted to run home from the theater wanted to run home from the theater and begin training immediately, immediately. Reality, though, has a way of interfering, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, here, I'll give you a better view here. <laughs> Look at me. I, I have never done a one-handed push-up in my entire life. And, and, and if I were to try to do with a jump rope what Sylvester Stallone was doing in his training scenes, I would garrot myself, I'm sure, right? And at, at the time of the movie, I was barely five feet tall, and I was like 10 pounds short of 100. It was just not going to happen, right? But nevertheless, I, I hoped, I dreamed in a fiction, 
And what we often find is that in life, life in this broken world in which we live, that life reality rarely offers up the kind of heroes that we find in literature or certainly not in Hollywood. They just don't measure up because we're all finite and we're all flawed. And, and, and even the greatest true stories don't have the happily ever after ending that we find in fiction. Life, it seems, is always darker and harder than it is in the myths. The best true stories fall far, far short of our greatest fictional hero stories. And, you know, really, maybe that's for the best. Maybe that's for the best. Because, because true life is always more messy and divine help is always more necessary than the fallen human mind can comprehend. And, and in our passage today, Psalm 108, David, the great king and worship leader of Israel, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was able to comprehend the futility of human salvation. And in fact, David understood that unless God acts, there was no hope for God's people at all. But David did know, he did know, that God had made promises. And he knew and believed that God would keep them. And David knew that when God did keep his promises, deliverance for God's people was certain and that victory was a sure thing. And so we're going to walk through Psalm 108 here, basically stanza by stanza, and, and take a look at, at what David and, and the Holy Spirit has for us today. So we begin in verses 1 through 4. My heart is confident, God. I will sing. I will sing praises with the whole of my being. Wake up, harp and lyre. I will wake up the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your faithful love is higher than the heavens. And your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. So the psalm here begins with a statement of resolve, doesn't it? David is just bent on worshiping God. His heart, we're told, is steadfast. That is, he's ready. He is, he's fully resolved, committed to praise the Lord with everything that is in him. And we know here that this is not a vow of, of partial praise. It is total commitment. Total commitment. David, in fact, is going to beat everyone he knows to the punch. In fact, he's going to outpace the sun. He's going to wake up earlier than the sun and awaken it. Furthermore, it's public praise, isn't it? In David's statement of, of confidence, we see that his praise is not private. David is determined to give thanks, and he wants to exalt the Lord before a watching world, not hidden from it. And, and, and why wouldn't he want to do this? Because David knows that God's glory, it, it can't be contained in the privacy of his prayer closet. The, the, the glory of God, David understood, it, it was already public. It's already public. And, and actually, David understood that for those who have eyes to see, the glory of God is the most public and conspicuous fact of life that there is. The steadfast love of God, it's great above the heavens. The, the faithfulness of God, it reaches to the clouds, David says. Can't you see it? You can almost hear him. You can almost hear him asking the people that he is, you know, all those people that he woke up, right? Can't you see the glory of God? Can't you see the goodness in God, of God, the faithfulness of God? By David's reckoning, why not praise publicly? The, the glory, the goodness, the faithfulness of God, they're already discernible facts to anybody who has ever bothered to pay attention. And I think here we could take a lesson from David. David is unashamed, unashamed to identify himself with the Lord. 
And he's unashamed to identify his people with the Lord as well. And, and sometimes it's hard to do that. I, I mean, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. We, sometimes we might think that God is just too hidden, at, at least from public view. And, and the, the, the right-thinking people, they, they, they can't necessarily discern him. Public identification with God is it's just going to be embarrassing, right? But David knows better than that. God's, God's glory and attributes, they're not hidden. David understood that right-thinking people won't miss it. Recall the Apostle Paul's words about, you know, a thousand years later from Romans 1. Paul writes, Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Everyone everywhere has true knowledge of God. Paul knew that. David understood it too. And to not discern God's power and his divine nature is to think wrongly. Those so-called right-thinking people out in the world, they're actually wrong-thinking people. They're either ignoring the evidence or they perceive it and then suppress it. Both are unrighteous and willfully wrong acts. So Sun Valley Church, are, are, are you a body that is public with your praise? Now, I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing that you should do your best to annoy people. You know, wait for the most inopportune time to make known your commitment to God. Maybe go through the, the quiet streets early, early in the morning, blasting K-love from your, you know, your, your stereos in your car. Don't do that. I'm not asking you to be annoying. But we need to remember, David apparently was not terribly concerned not terribly concerned about waking people up before they wanted to. What I'm asking for is a sincere declaration, the most obvious thing in the universe. God is good. And God is loving. And God is faithful. We compare those kinds of public declarations with, with what the world thinks about God. To the world, the God of Christians sometimes is seen as intolerant, hateful, maybe sexist, sometimes even genocidal. And, and, and let's just admit it, much of that is due to the hardness and blindness of the world. But some of it, some of it might be due to our misrepresentation or our lack of representation. Maybe we're not public with the God and Father of Jesus Christ. And sometimes when we are public with him, we, we misrepresent him. Sometimes we might seek to protect our own way of life and security over and above our desire to see God's name glorified among the nations. Now, about the nations, it's, it's certainly going to take more than public praise to see the nations repent. But I don't think it's going to take less. I don't think it's going to take less. Why? Because the world, quite frankly, is dying to know that God is loving. The world is dying to know this God who is faithful. And more could be said about God than just that he is loving, that he's faithful. More could be said. More has to be said, I think. But, but these two attributes, the love of God, the faithfulness of God, whenever God got the chance, he trumpeted them. Right? He wasn't ashamed of those. He was quite proud of those. Maybe we should make them some of our favorites also. Remember that, that strange affair in Exodus 34 when, when Moses asks God, show me your glory? And so God says, okay, I will. And he, and he 
takes Moses and he puts him like in the cleft of the rock. We would never even speak about a cleft of the rock if it wasn't in the Bible like that. So he hides basically uh, Moses from his immediate presence. I, I take it because his immediate presence would have just been too overwhelming and who knows, Moses might have just disintegrated right on the spot or something, right? In the very presence of God. So he kind of hides him. And then what does he do? He, he, he basically parades himself before Moses declaring the Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. The love and the faithfulness of God are eminently worthy of public declaration because God has done it himself, right? I mean, think about it. Moses says, oh God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will. I am merciful. I am gracious. I abound in steadfast love. I am faithful. That's my glory, Moses. How can we who know the Lord be silent about such things? David is resolved to make this God public. Before anything is actually done, I mean, David's got a lot he's going to be asking for, but right now, he, he's going to kind of screw up his courage and determined to trust God. David's going to wake early. He's going to beat the dawn. He's going to give thanks and he's going to sing praises without shame. Look at verses five and six. This is, this is a statement of praise, but then we get a request after that. God, be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over the whole earth. Save with your right hand and answer me so that those you love may be rescued. Now verse five begins with more praise, doesn't it? David insists that God be exalted above the heavens. He demands that the glory of God be manifest over the entire earth. And again, David understands God's lordship to extend throughout the land, throughout the cosmos. So it's only natural. He would say, I want your glory to be everywhere that your arm reaches. I want your glory to be everywhere. What do we mean by that when we say that? What is glory? Have you thought about that? Have you, has anyone ever asked you, what is glory? Think about that for a moment. If someone says, quick, define glory in like five or six words or a sentence, how would you do it? It's hard. Bible translators tell me that glory is the most difficult term that they have to translate into the languages of biblically illiterate cultures. I mean, in America, we have a notion of what glory is. We, we, we refer to our flag as old glory. But the only reason we kind of know a little bit about what glory is is because of our Judeo-Christian background. It's part of our vocabulary. But imagine if you don't have that kind of picture. How would you define it? How, how would you define it? Well, it's God's visible presence among people. Or as, as John Piper puts it, and John Piper likes to talk about the glory of God every now and then, right? Actually, that's the only thing he ever talks about, really. Um, is it, it, According to Piper, it is the public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God. The public display of the infinite worth and beauty of God. I think that's pretty good. I think that's pretty good. Um, I, I, one of my colleagues at Western Seminary, he refers to it even more succinctly than that. He says, glory is God's stuff. God's stuff. I think that's pretty good, too. You, you, you might recall from the many places in the Bible that God is always accompanied by, by great light. The Old Testament calls this the Shekinah glory, the, the glowing of God's presence and the residual light that is left behind when he leaves. The radiance of wonder that accompanies him 
and even that which he leaves behind when he's gone. I like to think of glory as like divine DNA, divine DNA. People, you know, people will perhaps commit a crime and they'll leave behind some of their DNA, either like skin cells or, or oils or something from their fingers, maybe blood, whatever. God leaves glory behind. God leaves glory behind. And it doesn't take a CSI detective to determine who was on the scene when glory is found. Hmm, sounds like strange things happened here. Oh, really? Well, what do you see? Looks like glory was left behind. Must be the Lord then. Must be the Lord. Here's a perplexing question for us while we're talking about glory. Have you ever thought about how can we actually glorify God? How can we glorify God? As, as if we're bringing some glory and like giving it to him. When glory is God's stuff and, and we really don't have any glory that we can contribute, how, how do we do this? How, how can we add to God's glory when he's already perfectly and self-sufficiently glorious? And the answer, of course, is we cannot generate glory on our own because glory only comes from God. But we can reflect God's glory. The light that shines from God can reflect off his image bearers back to God being made visible to a watching world. And in God's economy, his glory increases when that happens. All through the scriptures, we see God being glorified by his creation. We're told the heavens declare the glory of God as it reflects the power, the, the wonder, the, the creativity that God maximally possesses. Humans exalt God and they bring him glory by adoring him for who he is, proclaiming to a, a watching cosmos, a listening cosmos, the, the attributes of God that, again, God maximally possesses. We also glorify God by, by doing good, particularly when we do things in the name of God in the way that he would have us do it, displaying to a needy world the goodness, the compassion of God. Attributes, again, that God maximally possesses. So, so to glorify God really is, is, is to worship him. It's to ascribe to him, to declare that these things are true of him. All of the attributes that he alone possesses maximally, honor and strength and holiness and wisdom, we could go on and on, right? And so David, David wants the glory of God to be manifest publicly. And in verse 6, we find out why. Why does David want the glory of God to be manifest publicly? Because God's people, David's subjects, need saving. They need deliverance. And, so, and David's request here, deliver your people. Deliver those you love, O oh God. It is no small request, no small ask. It's not at all. Because we find out later in the psalm that the people of God, David's people, they are literally surrounded by enemies, enemies on every side. Now we know why the psalmist is engaging in praise, why he's girding up his courage and the like. God's people need to be saved. But isn't it interesting that David begins with praise? Why? Why would David begin with praise? Why would he begin with, may your glory be manifest over the whole world? Because David knows what we often forget. The path to our good, indeed to our salvation, to our deliverance, it runs straight through the glory of God. When God's glory is manifested throughout the cosmos, when, when the majesty of God echoes across the universe, when the name of God is magnified high above the heavens, God's children will benefit every single time without exception. David understood that his only hope then, ultimately, 
if his people were going to be delivered, was in the glory of God. Now, why is this? Why is this? Because God's glory and the benefit of his children, it is never, ever a zero-sum game. God's glory, on the one hand, and our benefit are never in competition. In fact, in God's economy, his glory, his glory is maximized, is magnified when good is done for his people, when his people are saved. And this is no more apparent than in the cross of Jesus Christ, the greatest demonstration of the glory of God that the world has yet seen. And if you don't understand or don't believe what I'm saying here, think about the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for sin, for your sin. And then he rose again, conquering sin and death, a demonstration that God's justice had been satisfied. No penalty any longer required. On display at the cross of Christ is the holiness and the righteousness of God as he rightfully punishes sin and rebellion. On display is the love of God as he, at great cost to himself, sent his son, the second member of the Trinity, to die for us, saving us. On display at the cross of Christ is the faithfulness of God as he's on record throughout all the Old Testament and all of the words of Jesus as promising this very thing. The cross of Christ demonstrates that God is faithful to keep his promises, even the toughest ones. On display at the cross of Christ is the compassion of God, as he does for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. On display in the cross of Christ is the power of God, as he conquers the greatest enemy that humanity has ever known, sin and the curse of sin, death. On display is the brilliance of God, as he outsmarts the powers and principalities of this world, turning the tables on their devilish schemes, working his great salvation through their evil machinations. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Every single attribute of God is on display and magnified at the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so then it's no small wonder, is it, that in John's gospel, the time of Christ's horrific death on the cross, that, that Passion Week narrative, Jesus refers to it as the time of my glory. Jesus understood that the most ignominious thing that could ever happen to a person was actually the time of God's greatest glory. If there are any here who have lived their lives in rebellion against God, and of course that would be everyone, everyone who has not yet placed their trust in Christ, Perhaps you think, boy, I'd like to be in on this. I'd like to be on this glory of God thing. Please understand that the most God-glorifying thing that you could possibly do is to repent and believe the gospel by recognizing your need for a Savior, by turning to God in repentance, by, by confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, by believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and in so doing, you will be saved and God will be glorified. Do you want to make a name for yourself? Well, give glory to God. Repent, believe the gospel. Do you want to do something that actually maximally benefits you, like the best thing you could possibly do for yourself? Well, repent and believe the gospel, and in so doing, give glory to God. It is the most important thing. It is the greatest thing. 
It is the best thing that you will ever do. Repent, believe, be reconciled to our glorious God and Savior, our King. And for everyone else here, if you've already done that, if you've already done that, the same actually holds true. Whatever glorifies God is best for his people. And whatever is best for his people glorifies God. And God is all about maximizing his glory. I don't think God ever does anything that does not glorify himself. And everything that glorifies God is best for us. It's a simple matter of trust. And David demonstrates it brilliantly here. Now, cynically, cynically, we might think, you know, I think the reason that David praised God for like five verses before he got to the big request was he wanted to butter God up just a little bit. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we kind of do that with the, with the ACTS acronym, you know, when we pray, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then we get to supplication, the petitions. And, and maybe sometimes in our jaded thinking, we think, well, well how come I have to do adoration, confession first? Oh, I, I just need to, you know, butter God up and clear the runway, right? That's what I need to do. But I, I think that's sub-biblical. Yeah, and that's not what David is doing here at all. That's not what he's doing. The glory of God always precedes salvation, and the glory of God is always magnified by salvation. And David is in need of deliverance, and he knows that he can't do it. He can't deliver himself. He can't deliver his people. And he knows that only God can do it. So he does the only thing that he can do. He begins at the only place that he can begin, the glory of God. You can't go wrong by seeking the glory of God. David knew that, and we need to understand that too. There's times out here, I mean, we don't know what we most need, but God does, of course. Some, sometimes we know our need, but we don't know how it can come about. Well, seek God's glory then. Sometimes we don't know exactly what we need, so we don't even know what to ask for. Well, start where you can. Start with the glory of God. Seek God's glory. What does that look like? Magnify God. Rehearse his attributes. Do what we've done here. Gather with his people and praise him. Pray that God will bring glory to himself through your circumstances. Ask that God would enable you to glorify him through your response. I, I, I was sitting here while the service, this service was just starting. My phone started blowing up from, from my wife and, 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 and people at the church. That, that One of our supported workers who had grown up at Henson Church... Uh, was was killed in Morocco. In, he was one of our missionaries there. He was, he was just killed, and he died like just this morning. It's just stunning, stunning. And 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 we might think, what what are you doing, God? What are you doing? How does this bring glory to you? And how is this best for your children? How is this best? He leaves behind a wife and, and kids. How? In what possible universe is this best? And, and, I'll, and I'll be honest, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that God does not do anything that does not glorify himself. And I know that when God is glorified, it's best for his people. And we might not be able to explain how that's best now. But we hang on to these truths knowing that someday we will. Someday, I mean, and it's easy for me to say because it's not my dad, it's not my spouse, but someday all of God's people will gather together and they will say, 
God, you were good, even in that hardest time. And you used me to bring glory to yourself. And I would have it now, no other way. And it's faith. We cling to faith now, hoping that such is the case, being convinced that such is the case. And, and so maybe we don't have all the answers for why we have to go through the things that we go through, but we cling in faith. And if all we can do is give some sort of praise to God, well, that's a good place to begin. It's a good place to begin. Another way we seek God's glory is we, we, we do the deeds of the kingdom of God. We, we identify with Christ in, in, in everything that we do. I mean, Jesus said that, right? He said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and, and then everything else that we need will be given to us. And so what, what, what we learn of this is that full-hearted and full-throated glorification of God, it's always a right and proper activity. It's always the surest path to our deliverance. Our deliverance runs right through the glory of God. Do you believe that? Whatever glorifies God is best for his people. And whatever is best for his people glorifies God. And those two are never, ever in competition. David understood that. And so he goes on in verse 7, a statement, again, of God's lordship over the nations. He says, God has spoken in his sanctuary. I will celebrate. I will divide up Shechem. I will apportion the valley of Sokoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. I throw my sandal on Edom. I shout in triumph over Philistia. What's David doing here? David is actually rehearsing the promises of God in his mind. In David's time of need, what does he do? He goes directly to God's speech, to God's word. These promises are old covenant promises. And, and David knew that God's speech is reliable because God is holy and he cannot lie. He has to keep his promises. I mean, it, it's one thing. It's pretty amazing that God always keeps his word. You know what's even more amazing? That knowing that he has to keep his word, he keeps talking, right? It, if I had to keep my word, if I had to keep like every single promise and it was just impossible for me to lie, I would shut up, right? And I would stop making promises because... Oh, when we make promises, we, we morally obligate ourselves to do things. When God makes promises, he not only morally obligates himself, he ontologically obligates himself to do something. There's no turning back for God. And yet he keeps on making promises to his people. Go back to, to, to that Exodus 34 passage where Moses says, show me your glory. And look what God says. Verse 10, the Lord responded, look, I am making a covenant. I will perform wonders in the presence of all your people that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work for what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. Observe what I command you today. I am going to drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, all of the enemies of God's people that surrounded them. And, and here in this Exodus passage, given to Moses, we have a statement of God's determination to glorify himself, followed by a, de a determination of his to deliver his people from their enemies. 
The promised land would be theirs, God says. And Gilead and Manasseh, going back to David's psalm, Gilead and Manasseh are at the far corners of Israel. And David knew that God had promised that his arm extends even that far. Ephraim and Judah, they're the largest tribes, the representative tribes, and, and right there in, in the heart of the promised land. And God's covenant promises, of course, they extend to them. God will protect his people from their enemies. David lists all the enemies in Psalm 108 that literally surrounded Israel. And what we see from this is that it's hardly a fair fight. God treats his enemies with contempt. Moab is likened to a wash basin. Edom is treated with shameful derision. It's where God puts his feet. And he's going to do a victory dance on the head of Philistia. What's the bottom line here? God will be faithful to his promises. David knew that Israel needed deliverance, and so what does he do? He goes to the promises of God and rehearses them. He knew that God would be faithful to, now, to, to what we now call the Old Covenant. God would deliver his people. But what about us? We live on the other side of the cross, right? Other side of the cross. These, th those Old Covenant promises of Philistia and Edom and deliverance and those sort of things, they don't apply to us explicitly. So what do we do with it? How is this God's word to us? Well, one bad approach to this, I think, would be to spiritualize it and ask, who are the Edomites and the Moabites in my life? Who are the Philistines? Who are the Goliaths in my own life? And pray that God would, would deliver me from them. And, and I suppose that you could do that, but, but that would be a very thin reading of scripture, I think. Why? Because we're under the new covenant and Paul said that we have newer and better promises. Newer and better promises. So, like David, then, we should appeal to God to keep his promises to us, knowing we actually have better promises. Now, what does this look like? Well, first, as, as the church, we're, we're not a nation. We're not an ethnic people. But we are the start of the kingdom of Christ. We constitute a kingdom. Our, our enemies are not ethnic people groups. Our enemies are not nations. That's not the case. Who are our enemies? Sin, death, the world, the flesh, the devil. But they're not humans. They're not humans. The individual who knifed down this supported worker that I just alluded to earlier, he, he was killed by a, a, by a man, by, by a knife. But that's not primarily who our enemy is. Our enemies are not people. Our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil that drive people to do such evil things. God has promised that he would prevail over all these things, the world, the flesh, the devil. God has promised that through Christ, we will overcome the world. So what about those nations that David listed that were the enemies of God? Are, are, are they now irrelevant? What's, I mean, what's the point of them in the new covenant? Well, here's the cool thing. The covenant Lord of Israel is, in fact, the one true God of the nations. He's the judge of the nations, the judge of the peoples. See, our God is not just our little tribal deity. And in that regard, nothing has changed since the death and resurrection of Jesus. God is the sovereign Lord over all of the nations. He will still demand an accounting of everyone. 
But see, here's the good news. Whereas under the old covenant, ethnic peoples were the enemies of God's people, now under the new covenant, the ethnic people groups, they are invited into the new covenant. We all were once alienated from God. We were all once by nature enemies of God, objects of his wrath, but we have all been invited into the new covenant and that invitation is open to anyone and everyone and as the ambassadors of Christ, we make that appeal. See, this is all in 2 Corinthians 5, right? We don't regard people according to the flesh anymore. When you look at someone who doesn't know Christ, you ought not to see an enemy. You ought to, you ought to see someone who has been created in the image of God, and you give that invitation. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. The atoning work of Jesus on the cross is powerful to save anyone who believes, regardless of nationality, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender. So, unbeliever, if you're here, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you need to know that the God of the Bible is not a mere tribal deity. Right? People, you know, you come here, you listen, you, you know, you see Sun Valley Church gather, think, oh, they're just worshiping this God that they know, but there's other gods out there. No, not like this God, not like the God I'm talking about here. He is, in fact, the sovereign God and the Lord of all he created, and his love for the world includes you. If you do understand yourself to be a Christian, you need to know that your God is, in point of fact, everyone's God. He is the one true God and he has a claim on everybody. The nations belong to him. Christian, you might be tempted to think that you're a Christian merely by an accident of history. You were born in a place where the gospel's freely preached. You know, you're born, say, here. But maybe if you were born in the Middle East, you'd be Muslim and you'd be happy, right? Well, you need to think differently about that. You are an ambassador of the living Christ commissioned to make this appeal. Be reconciled to God. Not just to your God, but to the God. In our postmodern tolerant context, people are fond of talking about, well, my God is this way. And someone else say, yeah, but my God is this other way. Maybe we should eliminate the, the my God thing from our vocabulary and speak faithfully about the one true God. We need to be willing to winsomely correct people's misunderstandings of God, not, not because we're smarter, but because the one true God is making his appeal through you. And so let's look at, at David, finally, his plea for deliverance in verses 10 through 13. He says, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? God, haven't you rejected us? God, you don't march out with our armies Give us aid against the foe, for human help is worthless. I always think of, whenever I read that, I, I think of in the Lord of the Rings, when at, at the Council of Rivendell, where Elrond says, men, men are weak. Right? That's what David says here. Humans are weak. Vain is the salvation of humans. But, but verse 13, with God, we will perform valiantly. He will trample our foes. David has the promises. He knows that he's absolutely helpless to bring about deliverance. He's the king. He's the rightful leader of Israel. He is the one who is commissioned to lead Israel into battle. But if the Lord doesn't lead, 
it's as though David doesn't even know the way to Edom. How can he lead his people into battle if God does not go before? So he's come to the end of his rope. If God continues to reject them, then there is no hope. He knows that. So David is the only thing he can do. He prays for deliverance. He places no confidence in human achievement. No confidence in human deliverance. Now, let's think about it. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not totally dissing on humans. We, we have great capacity to do many things. But when it comes to important concerns, we are historically unreliable. And when it comes to ultimate concerns, life and death, overcoming sin and death, reconciling ourselves to our holy and loving God, saving ourselves, we are batting a big fat zero. Zero. No success whatsoever in this. We can't save ourselves. David knew that. And we have to come to grips with that too. But David also knew that if God was for them, then who could be against them? Deliverance was sure because of the promises and the activity of God. And more than that, dominance was sure. Apart from God, they could do nothing. But with God, Israel would triumph. Israel would do valiantly. Why? Because God would win the victory and he would do it through them. God would utterly defeat the foe and he would sustain his people in victory even as he saved them. And if that was true for David with the old covenant promises, a covenant, a covenant that Paul referred to as a covenant of death, how much more is that true for us, this side of the Christ, who know the victory that Jesus Christ has won for the sinner? Remember Paul's words from Romans chapter 8? He said, if God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also, with him, grant us everything? Later on he says, no, 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 in, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And, and then he just gives up. And he says, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sun Valley Church, you need to know that with Christ we shall do valiantly. And, and I say that, and you're probably thinking, you know, I'm not feeling all that valiant today. Right? I, I, I barely got to church without sinning too much, right? Too much. Well, I, I, I get it. I understand that. I have kids. I know what, I know what happens. <laughs> but we're not left on our own, right? Jesus has promised to send his presence to empower and to enable his church. So, so we exercise the gifts that Jesus has won for us, and the Holy Spirit freely gives and enables to the end that the body of Christ might be edified. With Christ, Sun Valley Church, you will do valiantly. And Jesus has promised his abiding presence. Remember his words, his last words, basically, before he ascended. I will be with you always. And that includes the darkest times. Jesus has promised that because he has conquered death, the church and everyone within will too. Jesus has walked through the valley of the shadow of death and come out the other side, and he knows the way. He knows the way to lead you and guide you through it. And so we comfort one another as we go about this life with the truth that this life is not all there is and we have a faithful guide who can take us to what life actually is all about. Sun Valley Church, with Christ, 
you shall do valiantly. Jesus has promised, he's promised that he is going to be our great high priest. He intercedes on our behalf at the throne of grace. And so you persevere in prayer and you persevere in praise and, and, and you do what you have done this morning even when everyone else was sleeping in and you do so publicly to pray and to praise even when it's not convenient, even when in the world's eyes there are more entertaining and seemingly more profitable things to do. But you know better, don't you? That's why you're here. That's why you're here. With Christ we shall do valiantly. Jesus has promised that he will build his church because Jesus is the son of God, fully divine. He has to keep his word. He's promised that the gospel will go forth. He has told us that he has sheep everywhere among the nations and they will come to him when they hear his voice. And so with humble boldness, he privileges you to be his voice among the nations. The church will prevail, not because of the brilliance or skill of individual Christians, but because of the church's Lord. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth, not because of the cleverness or eloquence of evangelists, but because of the power of the evangel itself, the gospel of God and the Holy Spirit who effects faith and conversion and regeneration in hopelessly lost sinners. With Christ, we shall do valiantly. Jesus has promised that he will ensure, he will ensure that you persevere. So we, in turn, we persevere in doing good, especially to and for Christ's church. We are willing to give and to serve even when it hurts. No, especially especially when it hurts. Why? Because we serve a crucified Lord and we don't give up because we serve a resurrected Lord. My friends, seek the glory of God first and foremost because in that, you will find your deliverance. God will be glorified and you will be delivered. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these great and precious promises. And we ask that you would give us the faith to believe them. And even in the darkest of times, we pray that we would understand that the path of our deliverance, it runs right through your glory. You will not do anything that does not glorify yourself. And anything that glorifies you is what is best for us. Give us the faith to believe that and to live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.